Well, we are back at EarthX, and uh, we've been uh, sitting in on the energy panel today at EarthX, um, and really some fascinating speakers from across the spectrum on issues of energy. And we are very, very fortunate to have with us as a special guest today, Tim Kruger, the founder and CTO of a company called Origin Power in the UK, uh, who has come from the UK to attend EarthX and talk about the work that his company is doing uh, to address climate change. So Tim, Welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. Thank you, Peter. And tell us a little bit about what you're doing over there in the UK. So I kind of wear two hats. Uh, I work at the University of Oxford, where I run a program looking at a whole range of ideas for removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. We've got a real problem with the amount of carbon dioxide we're putting into the atmosphere, and we need to reduce that very rapidly. But what most people don't realize is that just reducing it isn't enough. We actually have to get to net zero. For every amount that we emit, we're going to have to take out a similar amount of CO2. And that is going to be on a truly enormous scale in order to avoid dangerous climate change. Well, you know, that was one of the things that struck me in listening to the panel today that you were on, um, is when we come into this discussion and we're in this community of people who are obviously sensitized to this issue, um, there isn't any sense of, gee whiz, maybe this isn't real, gee whiz, maybe it's a hoax, this is all a thing to, I mean, we are so far beyond that conversation in this room, but for a lot of listeners out there, this is still something they're like, really, is this for sure, Is are we really changing the climate in a meaningful way? I hate to ask you to go back to this beginning of time here, but talk about the, the, what you understand to be the reality of this problem. A little bit. The the scientific evidence is overwhelming. And in a way, I'm kind of jealous of people who are uh, skeptical of uh, climate change because I probably sleep better in my bed at night, not worrying about it. But the the evidence is there. Um, It's it's clear from the physics. It's clear from uh, the temperature readings around the world. Uh, It's changing. And some people might say, oh, well, the climate changes all the time. How do we know it's humans? We can see our, our, our footprints, our, our fingerprints are on uh, on that rise in temperature. The correlation is, is very clear. And the increase uh, both in the level of CO2 in the atmosphere and in the temperatures is very rapid. Um, and it is not something that you would expect in the normal run of events and uh, the normal fluctuations that do happen um, on the planet. No doubt about it. Really, it is in the evidence, and we have a great capacity to deny. However, the Earth is pretty good at reminding us of the truth. Mm-hmm. I think we're seeing it in, in storms. We're certainly seeing it in Alaska now, with in, in, in the Arctic. Uh, I think the temperature in March in Alaska was 18 degrees above normal. And as you're saying, this kind of aberration and fluctuation in a, in a natural system is tells you there's an outside forcing agent here that is meaningful and, uh, and very powerful. Um, your work uh, with Origin Power is, is beyond, of course, whether this is true, but starting to really tackle the difficult problem. And uh, in your remarks on the panel, I was struck by the magnitude of what you're dis- what you're saying in terms of the effort that this is going to take, the volume of CO2 we're going to have to tackle. Could you give our audience a sense of, of the scale of this problem in terms of the millions of tons and things that we need to be dealing with? Well, Peter, it's, it's not millions of tons. Um, it's not billions of tons. 
it's probably going to be trillions of tons. So that's millions of millions of tons that we're going to need to remove from the atmosphere in the decades ahead. Um, even if you look at the most optimistic of the climate scenarios, you're looking at a need to remove somewhere between 600 billion and 800 billion tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere in the decades ahead in order to avoid the rise in temperature, um, the one and a half, two degrees that is in the Paris Agreement. And those are very optimistic scenarios. They assume that we will be able to cut emissions extremely rapidly. And realistically, it is going to be in the trillions of tons. And now to give it some context here, mm-hmm. each year we add of the order of about 40 billion tons of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. And it's not enough just to slow down the rate at which we add uh, CO2 to the atmosphere. So even if we go from 40 billion to 20 billion to 10 billion, no, not enough. We need to get to zero. And actually, we need to go beyond zero. We actually need to start removing CO2 from the atmosphere. Wow, what a challenge. And part of the reason for that, and I'm absolutely open to you explaining this in a better way, but it's the persistence of CO2 in the atmosphere, the fact that once it's there, these molecules are very, very stable. They don't break down. Um, So they're not going to magically disappear on their own. Uh, Tell us about what happens when we we put, you said 40 billion tons, right, a Mm -hmm. year. Mm -hmm. Five years, that's 200 billion tons of additional CO2 in the atmosphere. To get this problem under control, we have to somehow stop adding and then begin subtracting. And the subtraction number is a trillion. That's right. That's scary as hell. Yeah. I'm sorry. That just (laughs) freaks me out. That is an enormous challenge. And yeah, so how do you sleep when you work on this every day? Well, I guess I I sleep because I know that I'm working on uh, things that are hopefully solutions. And so um, I think if you are just aware of the problem and not doing anything about it, I think that's when you kind of panic. But when you're aware of the problem and you think, okay, I'm on a path to trying to address this, um, it's it, it's meaningful, it's useful. I may not achieve it. Um, and it's going to be a lot of work of a lot of people to, to get there. But we think we've got a, a way in which we can remove CO2 at a very large scale. And what is it? Let's hear about it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, um, paradoxically, we actually use... Um, natural gas to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and this this is a bit strange it makes people think hang on what's going on here so we use natural gas methane to uh, and we burn that and that generates heat Um, and that heat is used to break down limestone Uh, limestone is calcium carbonate and it breaks it down into lime or calcium oxide and carbon dioxide now at this stage you're probably thinking that i'm nuts because it's actually generating carbon dioxide but the way we do this is that we do it in a way that all of the co2 produced is pure and that's really important because once you have pure co2 you can actually either use it for a whole variety of different things or you can compress it down and you can bury it deep underground it's called sequestration you you bury it underground and it stays there and it stays there for good so at this point we started with uh limestone and some methane and we've generated co2 and we've got some lime all the co2 is buried so at this point there's no emissions to the atmosphere so we're at a kind of zero emission production of lime right but one of the things that lime does is lime just reacts with carbon dioxide in the air just naturally and absorbs it essentially and absorbs it. yeah 
and, and so it takes it away. So overall, the process is carbon negative. Usually, if you burn a ton of methane, you produce about three tons of CO2 going into the air. Mm-hmm. With this process, for each ton of methane that you start with, you're removing net eight tons of carbon dioxide Fantastic. from the air. So very much a net negative. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's the purity of the CO2 process. I think you said the combustion is done with oxygen as That's opposed correct. to the natural air. doesn't produce any nitrous oxides or any nitrogen. Mm-hmm. You're really trying to tackle, and it sounds like, the filtration problem or the capture problem by producing this very concentrated, pure, manageable stream of CO2. Is that sort of why this is an innovative idea? Yeah. So there are a few things that I can't tell you about it. Okay. Um, um, I'm, I'm sure your, your listeners would, <laughs> we're gonna have would to understand come back them, in a few years, I, maybe. I, I can't shoot all of them. You know, we're, we're working on this and we're filing patents. So um, we have a, a process that allows us to do this relatively cheaply and easily to produce this pure CO2, and, and we can then get rid of it. But you're absolutely right. The normal way of producing lime is you, you burn methane, not in oxygen, but in air. Yeah. And obviously air contains oxygen, and it, that's what uh, allows the methane to combust. But air also contains a lot of nitrogen. And the nitrogen passes through the system and it comes out with the, the carbon dioxide that you've generated right. and you get a dilute CO2. And that's a problem. That's Nobody wants dilute CO2. Right. But if you've got pure CO2, that's dead easy. You can squeeze it, compress it, and inject it. Are you? Um, is your company participating in the X Prize that we just heard about? Well, it's interesting. So that there are two X Prizes. So there's one that uh, I, I wasn't in on the interview, but there's one that is about... Um, using carbon dioxide yes. as a, a feedstock um, and then there's another one which um, I hope you won't have to edit this out um, I think they're thinking about doing on carbon removal yeah um, I think we will participate in the carbon removal one obviously we need to see what it, it you know what the terms of it are um, but we're not participating in the one about carbon recycling um, w- if people have got ways of using that co2 great they can do as much as they like of that um, because we can supply them with that. But uh, that—that's we haven't looked at that. It's a fascinating uh, theory and, and concept here. Uh, I'm curious to know more about the lime. Mm-hmm. Um, how would that be used and implemented as a carbon sink or whatever? Uh, does it have to be set out in the open air with a whole bunch of surface area so that it can... How would that happen? Like, how, how would you... Uh, do that at scale okay so uh, the first thing to say is lime is a, a major industrial chemical so it's used in the manufacture of all sorts of things from steel glass paper cement sugar uh, it's used in water treatment um, and in many not all but in many of those uses it that lime will recarbonate it will take carbon dioxide out of the ambient environment so in the process of being used it, it strips co2 from the air one of the things you could do, and, and we're not actually looking at this at, at this point because um, it's problematic from a regulatory point of view, is you could put lime in seawater. So one of the problems with uh, the increased levels of CO2 in the atmosphere is, is not just the increase in temperature, but that CO2 is altering the chemistry of the oceans. It's causing ocean acidification. Right. And, and the addition of lime to seawater 
actually uh, counteracts that ocean acidification. And uh, for some very complex and boring chemistry, which I won't go into, you get roughly twice as much carbon dioxide removed when you put lime in the seawater really? as when you put it on the land. And that is a, that is a win-win, as they would say. Uh, the ocean acidification issue is mm-hmm. one I really would like to spend a little bit of time okay, in. And, sure. I, and I'd like to ask you to you know help our listeners understand it, because uh, from the uh, little bit of work we've done on on this and talking to people it is uh, significant as an issue around the world Uh, the ocean is the principal isn't it absorber of co2 from the atmosphere right now and the percentage is rather high of the total isn't it yeah it's about a quarter of the co2 so roughly for uh for every four tons of co2 that goes into the atmosphere uh, one ton is absorbed by biomass growing, okay. and about one ton uh, is absorbed by the oceans, and about two tons persists in the atmosphere. It contributes to the increase in Very the helpful. level of CO2 in the atmosphere. That, that's, those are the rough okay, numbers. roughly. Yeah. And when CO2 dissolves in water, that's what mm-hmm. we're talking about, um, it changes It changes into calcium, uh, wait, carbon, no, no which help no, me no, out no, here. No, this, no, we're okay. going chemistry. We're going chemistry. Go I ahead, think. go ahead. We're, we're fine with that. You on the chemistry? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I don't think you can handle (laughs) it. I took organic chemistry and I remember it. Not fondly. Okay. Okay. (laughs) You know, but a little bit. Okay. So, um, so essentially, uh, CO two dissolves in in water and it reacts. It it forms a carbonic acid. There you go. That's what I was trying to remember. It's it's acidic. So um, it. Um, in fact, rainwater is slightly acidic. So if you've got pure water, the pH is 7. That's neutral. Right. But with CO2 that's absorbed by sea, but, sorry, by uh, rain as it falls through the air, it actually reduces it down to 5.5 or so. Wow. And so rainwater is actually slightly acidic naturally. Now, the more CO2 in the atmosphere there is, the more CO2 dissolves in the ocean. And what that does is it pushes down the pH. Right. Uh, now, the ocean is actually slightly above 7. It's about roughly 8.1. Okay. Um, so it's an alkaline. This is the pH. Scale. This is the pH. Yeah. Yes. Complex chemistry stuff, but essentially the more carbon dioxide you add, the pH will start coming down from 8.1. And uh, that will be a, a big problem. It will have major impacts on some of the things at the base of the food chain right. um, that are the, the, the little critters that uh, the bigger critters eat. Yeah, the foramen, 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 oh boy. Foraminifera. Thank you, the foraminifera and uh, the plankton shells. And, and we're talking about... But it's the coccolithophores. The forearms are actually a different system, but yeah, the coccolithophores. Okay, and 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 because these things have carbonate shells, and mm-hmm. and this is why this is an activated, uh, why this is active in the natural world. Yeah, uh, and it it affects lobsters and shellfish and mm-hmm. anything that is forming carbonate shells, which is quite common, even corals. Yeah, uh, and th- this slight change in the pH has already been demonstrated around the world to be impacting the. Uh, the viability of these populations isn't that's not a lie right that's no, true that that's certainly not a lie i, I mean um lobsters ph does change them but it's actually a carrageen that they've got in their their shells rather than uh carbonate so just get it but uh corals uh yeah. they they contain carbonate most of them contain carbonate and uh it very much affects them so you you've got to that there, there are parts of the ocean now where uh, it's becoming increasingly difficult for corals to form. 
And if we carry on at the rate we are now, the areas of the ocean where corals can form will shrink and shrink and shrink. Wow. And by the end of this century, there'll hardly be any places where corals will be able to wow. form. It's stunning. And so tell us a little bit about, I, I'm curious. So uh, I guess you were, a, tell me a little bit about what you were doing before you founded Origin Power. And what, uh, yeah, can you walk us through the transition that brought you to the point of forming a company that was trying to figure out how to economically address climate change? It's interesting. So I, I, I've done lots of different things. I won't go through my entire life story, but um, one of the things I was doing was I was working for a consultancy looking at um, working on innovation. That was my area. And I worked for and did a piece of work for an organization in Britain called the Carbon Trust. The Carbon Trust is a was a government funded organization that was about transitioning to a low carbon economy. And I started uh, looking. My job was to look at the portfolio of ideas to counteract climate change. And I looked at them and I thought this just isn't enough. This isn't going to get there. So I started working on looking at ideas uh, for uh, how you could take CO2 out of the atmosphere. And I came up with an early version of this uh, lime process that I'm I'm now working on. um, And that involved putting lime in the ocean. Now, that is highly kind of controversial, uh, putting that kind of stuff in the ocean. And it probably, there's all sorts of kind of international laws and conventions that you would have to change in order for that to happen. And it's a real risk risk problem that we have if, if we we are going to live in a changed world either a world changed by climate change alone or a world changed by climate change and some of these these right. techniques and i got involved with a group of people uh, at oxford university so i wasn't at the university at the time and i started working on looking at okay what should be the guidelines for this kind of thing and that then developed into some uh, advice that was adopted uh, as policy by the UK government. Interesting. You know, I've, I've got to ask, uh, we're in Texas. Mm-hmm. You you've flew across the pond to be here. Mm-hmm. Um, Peter opened the interview up with a, a discussion about um, kind of the, den- the post-denial. Mm-hmm. I, I call this that we're in the post-denial era now. Mm-hmm. I think that... Uh, the fact that we have the the tax credit that was the bipartisan uh, tax bill, I believe, was what that was yeah. called. I mean, the Republicans got, but I haven't been following as closely the politics sure. of climate change uh, in the UK. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious to know, uh, obviously, you're working in this, so mm-hmm. I'm sure in your community, but more broadly, like when you go out to the country and you're talking to maybe someone who's... Uh, are they uh, is climate change i mean it's an island nation mm-hmm. um surrounded by the sea i imagine highly susceptible to uh the effects of climate change as we all are and regardless of where you are but i'm, I'm curious to know what the culture is like over there so uh it's certainly not as uh, uh it's more bipartisan and it's not as divisive polarized as as you have in this country um uh, there was a, a law passed in 2008 called the Climate Change Act, and that committed the government then and all future governments to work towards cutting emissions in the UK uh, by 80% by 2050. And that was supported by all of the political parties in the UK. I mean, there were one or two people who went, no, I don't agree with this, and they voted against it. But all the political parties backed it. And that's still very much the case in the UK. 
Um, I mean, there are people who um, are uh, either climate skeptics who don't believe that humans have a significant role in uh, the, the effects of climate change. And there are others who say, well, the costs of dealing with it are too high and we should put money elsewhere. But the vast majority of uh, people uh, in public life uh, in the UK, and this also applies in, in Europe as well, are, uh, uh, are, are clear that climate change is a, a very present uh, pressing issue. So that, that issue, that, that law was 80% reduction by 2050. Um, there, there is uh, probably next week, uh, uh, there, there will be a report that says actually we need to increase that will actually be, we need to get to net zero. It's not 80%, it's 100%. We need to get to net zero. And uh, really the advice should be uh, in, uh, in very soon, in the next probably uh, 15 years or so, but actually uh, it will probably end up being something like 2050. Well, I think in terms of the reality of the problem, when I look around and I see the level of investment happening, mm -hmm. and I, people with who are putting real money around the world, venture capital firms, the oil and gas industry is doing it, the investment in wind power off the United States, the tax credit itself. Mm. I mean, underneath the public skepticism, it seems to me that the serious people on the world, the scientists and the engineers and the people who can look at data and understand it are way ahead than the, of the public in this country mm -hmm. and the vast majority. And certainly I think, sadly, ahead of the political leadership in this country. But mm -hmm. um, it doesn't mean what I, I, I sort of believe that the ability to deny this is going to get increasingly difficult as mm -hmm. the ramifications are evident. And it, it's already obviously mm -hmm. uh, demonstrable mm -hmm. in terms of people's daily lives and, and what's happening. Um, but is this idea of um, of going negative, really, not only reducing to zero mm -hmm. the additional CO2 that's added to the atmosphere, but then pulling it out of it. In your presentation and your remarks on the panel, I was stunned when you said the, the kind of industrial scale that this is going to require is going to be as large as the oil and gas industry in the world is now, plus the coal industry as it is in the world now. is. That is a remarkable statement. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not the first person to say that. Um, obviously, it's kind of crystal ball gazing and trying to see yeah. what, what. But in terms of the scale of the effort, I think um, certainly in the UK, the, the the size of the industry that created the nuclear power industry, right, that generated nuclear power, and then you look at the size of the industry to clean up the waste. Yeah, they're about comparable. Okay, and you're probably going to see that with with CO two in the atmosphere as well. But one of the things I would say is, um, I think it's really, really important to see if there is a way of doing this in a, a bipartisan way. Uh, you need, as someone said to me, in this country, you need sixty votes in the Senate, and that involves people from both parties to, to make things happen. And one of the one of the design principles of what we've done. In, in making uh, this technology is not just whether it works physically, but whether it can work socially. And what we recognize that Thank if you. there is a way... Thank you for thinking of that. I think it's <laughs> absolutely essential. <laughs> if, it, if What we're trying to do is do this in a way where we can say, actually, you know that fossil fuel that that, that oil and gas company has got? We can actually use that for good. We can use, we can turn the fossil fuel industry from being 
an industry which is part of the problem of climate change into part of the solution. Right. Now, this is very confusing for a lot of people because yeah. they go, hang on a second, I thought the fossil fuel industry was bad. Yeah. And it's like, actually... I was there not very long ago. Can we, is there another example in history that we can turn to of that kind of pivot where you have... I mean, the tobacco industry... Uh, it doesn't work here. No, they're that's, not. That's they're not, not like working on cancer. Like they were not involved yeah. in that. You don't smoke a cancer treatment. I don't think. No. But like, I'm trying to think of another example in history where you have a um, industrial, economically driven, mm-hmm. um, externalized problem that then the same industry. You know, it's just such a fast, and I, I agree with you. It is. It's, it's confusing. It, it requires a little bit of uh, a, a gymnastics, and, and it, it it speaks to the moment we are in. Yeah. You know, uh, because for a long time, I mean, people, probably all of us in this room, uh, would be standing on the table shouting, "Hey, you guys, we we're not accounting for." Uh, what we're putting into the atmosphere. It's just not even on the... And now we're like, okay, we need you to start p- pumping this stuff in the ground. It's just a, it's a big change. So, so here's the thing. If, if there was a, a carbon price, let's say $20 a ton, then uh, you would, uh, for burning every ton of methane, you would um, have to pay $55 per ton. And... Uh, if you got paid with this process for removing the CO2, you get paid $165 a ton. There you go. Okay, so, so now you've got the potential for the fossil fuel industry to go, actually, we want a higher carbon price. We can get, make more money from a higher carbon price than a lower one. You know, if you double that, then, yeah. oh, we're making $330 a ton for getting rid for each ton of methane that they, they have. So we describe it as climate jujitsu. Um, we're actually mm. using the the profit motive and uh, the the power of well, this is the aim of of the fossil fuel industry for them to make money out of solving the problem. Now, people have got a genuine problem that because some people say actually the problem is capitalism. It's these big oil and gas companies. We've got to stop mm. them. For me, the problem is is climate change. But different people have different perspectives on this. Well, and I, I do think it, I, I do have, uh, I struggled a little bit when we started learning more about uh, potential solutions to, to climate change that involved the oil and gas industry. And I used to be a roughneck on drilling roots, so I'm okay. kind of familiar with, with what it looks like out there. Um, but the fact of the matter is the technology and the capability of what they have mm-hmm. is essential to the solution if if, and this is what I was asking on the panel, if secure geologic storage is part of the equation, we got to go to the guys who know how to drill it, know how to understand those geologic layers, understand how to cap wells, and all of that technology is going to be an essential part of the solution. And it does seem to me, from what I've heard, that geologic storage is going to be a pretty significant part of the solution. Do you feel that's accurate? Yeah, so I totally agree that it is part of the solution. I, I think you, you've got to have a note of caution here. There are other ways of taking CO2 out of the atmosphere. You can plant lots of trees yep. and they will absorb CO2. The, the limitation there is that there's only so much they'll do that then it's not going to be enough on its own. And uh, we have other uses of the land. Maybe we want to grow crops with biodiversity and things like that. And you have to manage it very carefully. And also, if the climate changes and you've planted a bunch of trees and they all burn down, effectively what you've done is created a great big 
pile of kindling. It's, it's not permanent. Mm-hmm. So there are issues all around. None of these things are slam dunks, simple things. Um, and one thing that um, I would add to that is that uh, there is also this perception of what's known as the moral hazard problem, which is mm-hmm. about um, the issue that if you think that there's a solution, then you just let it rip and you go, oh, well, it, someone else can sort it out later. Um, and that, I, that I is a problem. Pa- I hope we're past that point where the, <laughs> you know, that the, that the oil company, the, the producers, and we're all, we're all carbon producers. I drive a car, I buy, you know, we are, this is why you can't isolate the fact that the guys who drill the wells and, and put it in a pipeline and sell it to me are the issue. We are all the issue on the human planet right here. We are all the issue. Um, I think what we each have to recognize is that we, view the world in different ways uh, and we frame it in different ways and we will have different responses to different techniques and technologies so for some people it seems logical and it's not a problem other people it's deeply problematic so there there is no um, this is going to be acceptable to everyone indeed Uh, quite right uh, ladies and gentlemen, Tim Kruger, the founder and CTO of Origin Power from Oxford in the UK. Uh, really wish you great luck uh, in your effort and in your work and all of the other brilliant people on the planet who are taking a shot at this problem. We're going to need every bit of your effort and creativity uh, as a collective group. And we really appreciate that taking the time today to join us on the American Shoreline Podcast. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. Some will cry because they're frightened Someone who's loved him has died Yeah.